Amen. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, you are the eternal God. You have always been and will always be. You have no beginning or end. Eternally existent, you have no need for anyone or anything else. And through the very power of your word, you created all that we know. You spoke the world into existence and you gave us minds to comprehend you and this world. Through your power, our world was created and continues to exist even now as we know it. Lord, we confess that we do not always treat you as God and creator. We take for granted your will and your ways, but by ignoring you in our thoughts and our words and deeds, we act as atheists. Though we confess you with our mouths, our lives often deny you through their actions. Father, forgive us for not loving you as we ought. Forgive us for not obeying you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Lord, as we confess our sins to you, though, we are grateful that you have not left us alone. You have given us your son, Jesus Christ, so that when we fail, as we are prone to do, you view us not as rebels but as children. You are quick to forgive those who have been forgiven. You readily give grace to those who trust in your grace. And for this, we are grateful. Lord, we also thank you that we are not alone in this world, uh, but you give us others to link arms with and other like-minded churches and pastors. And today we thank you for those uh, from our congregation and our leadership who were able to attend Simeon Trust uh, at Hinson Baptist in Portland. As they were able to be challenged and equipped to handle your word, we pray that we would each benefit from the fruit of their labor, that our lives would evidence a work that only can be changed and brought about by your word. Lord, we thank you for connecting us with others who can train us to navigate the complexities of your words so that we can also be changed. Even now, this morning, uh, I pray for the word that will be preached, Lord, and we thank you for a, a successful and good uh, meeting yesterday here at the church. And as we welcome in new members and elders, we pray, Lord, for your faithfulness uh, just to be evident in our lives. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You can all have a seat. As Nick said, we had a congregational meeting yesterday. If you were able to make it, thank you for being there and fulfilling your role and responsibility as a member. Uh, we have a new member that we want to uh, uh, confirm into the congregation and then two new elders. And so if I could get Cassidy Zahn to stand, you're by your lonesome today, but that's okay. I'm going to ask you some questions here. Cassidy, do you reaffirm that now and into the future you are setting your faith, hope, and trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins and the fulfillment of all God's promises to you, even eternal life? I do. Do you vow to regulate your life and participation within this local church body according to the divine word in the strength of Jesus Christ our Lord and by his spirit? I do. do you further vow to do your best by the power of the Holy Spirit? to walk within the Mission Fellowship Family Covenant at all times, holding yourself accountable to it, being willing to restore it should it be broken, holding your brothers and sisters accountable to it as well. And if you fail to walk in this manner, do you vow that you will accept loving discipline from this church and its members with the goal of restoration to obedience in Christ? I 
Do you take personal responsibility in the life of this congregation and in the life of your brothers and sisters in Christ within this local body, relying upon the grace of God in such a way that Mission Fellowship and the entire Church of Jesus Christ will be blessed? Are you ready to join with this body in defending the gospel witness and preaching of this church? Welcome to the family. Everybody give her a hand. Will the members of Mission Fellowship, if you're a formal member, will you please stand? Do you, the members of Mission Fellowship, acknowledge and publicly receive these new, this new member as a gift of Christ to this church? Do you vow to love Cassidy and pray for Cassidy and work together with her in the protection and proclamation of the gospel for the good of the church and for the glory of Jesus Christ? Awesome. Have a seat and we'll pray. Father God, thank you for Cassidy. Thank you for what you're doing in her life. Thank you for drawing her to yourself. And we know, Lord, that she could be fruitful and grow in your word at many faithful churches, but you have seen fit to have her in this local church, and so we thank you for that. We thank you for the blessing she will be to us, already has been, and we thank you, Lord, for the ways in which we can impact her walk with you in a way that brings you glory and sanctification to her. We pray that you would be her sovereign Lord from this day forward, uh, and as long as she's in this church, that you would show it through this church body to her and with her. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Can I have Seth Spangle and Steve Galvin come up onto the stage? You guys can stand over here on my right. All right, two new elders that were, yeah, come, come on up. There we go. Not that close. We're not that close yet. All right. Two new elders that were uh, confirmed yesterday, and so we're going to have them uh, state some vows as well. Seth and Steve, do you vow to prayerfully seek God's will for our church family and steward her resources to the best of your ability based on our study of the Scripture and by the follow following the guidance of the Holy Spirit? And will you do so willingly, eagerly, lovingly, and humbly? Do you vow to live with the body in an understanding, gracious way based on the ultimate law of Christ's love? Do you vow to do your best to equip the body for the work of ministry as disciples of Jesus? Do you vow to appoint other elders and deacons who serve in these offices according to the criteria assigned to them in the scriptures? Further, do you accept the responsibility to continually be looking to raise up and train new leaders for the church? Do you vow to be ready to reason from the whole of scripture together and let this inform and guide all that we do in teaching, preaching, and counseling? Do you vow to lead the body in an environment of transparency and truthfulness so that sin can be dealt with quickly and effectively and restoration and peace can occur? Do you vow to provide correction and lovingly exercise church discipline when needed for the good of the church and the good of the one being corrected? And do you further covenant to do so wisely and in reflection of the love of the Father and always with the end goal of restoration? Do you vow to be on guard against false teachers and teachings and to identify them should the necessity arise? And lastly, do you vow to set an example and join members in fulfilling the obligations of church membership in submission to this congregation as it submits to the rule of Christ? Congregation, will you please stand? And you guys can face them. 
Do you, the members of Mission Fellowship, acknowledge and publicly receive these men as elders and as gifts to, of Christ to this church? Will you love them and pray for them in their ministry and work together with them humbly and cheerfully, that by the grace of God you may accomplish the mission of the church, giving them all due honor and support in their leadership, to which the Lord has called them, to the glory and honor of God. All right. Present elders, would you please come up here? And we're going to pray for them. All right. Father God, it is an odd thing that you work through fallible men. And yet, Lord, you call us to faithfulness, not by our power, not by our skill or intellect, not by our righteousness, but by yours. And so we pray now that as we stand here as a body, looking to these two men that are going to step into the role of elder, we, we pray, Lord, that you would lead them and guide them so that they might lead and guide us. We pray that you would help our hearts to humbly submit to them, to know, Lord, that they're fallible men, and yet to hold them to a high standard, all for your glory and our sanctification. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to have grace for them in the moments where they fail, that you would help us to have reverence for them in the moments where they're giving us your word, and that in their own personal and private study and prayer time that they've been given to, Lord, that you would speak to them in a strong and powerful way so that they might impart your wisdom to your people in this church. We thank you, Lord, for the gift that leadership is to the church. And so we pray, God, that we would see this moment as weighty, and we would see it as what you have done, which is to give us a great gift in these two men. We thank you, Lord, for them. We pray your blessing over them, and we pray your blessing over this church. In Jesus' precious name, amen. 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 Why don't you give me a hand? Thank you, guys. I look forward to many long elders' meetings. All right, would you join me in prayer? We're going to be in 2 Peter 1, moving into 2 Peter 2, if you want to go there. Um, but as we're moving there, we're going to pray. Father, thank you so much for the chance to be here together as a body. Uh, Lord, it is a powerful thing to know that throughout the world at this moment, there are men and women that are seeking to know you, seeking to understand your will as Lord. And as I just prayed, Lord, it is truly <laughs> an impossible thing to understand that you in your divine wisdom have decided to use fallible men. It is foolishness, Lord, in a sense. The world looks at it and says it is foolishness, and yet it is part of the work of sanctification and glory to you that you use men and women like us and to speak your word, men like me. And so I pray right now, Lord, for your grace, for your forgiveness, for your help, as I step into your holy word, it is weighty and powerful, and we desire to know your word and your word alone. And so, Lord, where I have unknowingly or unwittingly put my opinion into these words, I pray that you would proactively wipe them away. And where it is your word, I pray that we would be founded and anchored in it. I pray this in the power of Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be in 2 Peter 1.16 this morning. 2 Peter 1.16. In the summer of 1835, <clears throat> one of the new penny publishers, the newspapers that were able to be given to more and more people, known as the <clears throat> excuse me, New York Sun, began publishing a six-article series 
that caused their subscription numbers to absolutely skyrocket. You see, because it was a penny newspaper, more people could afford to get it, and so it spread like wildfire. Readers rushed to pour over information about the newly discovered life on the moon. The articles detailed the story of a famous astronomer named Sir John Herschel, who had set up a powerful telescope in Cape Town, South Africa. This telescope used a new technology known as hydro-oxygen magnification. Sounds pretty good, right? It was so powerful, the article noted, that Mr. Herschel could make out life forms on the moon, such as unicorns, two-legged beavers, and furry human-like creatures that had wings like bats. The cited source for all of this was in the Edinburgh Journal of Science. It was so convincing that a group of scientists from Yale traveled to New York to try and interview the expert. No one realized amidst all the craze that the true author of the article was a journalist who had written it as a satire poking fun at previously published opinions about life on the moon. The Edinburgh Journal of Science had actually not published in reality for two years. A month later, quietly, on a hidden page in the back of the newspaper, the newspaper admitted it was all a hoax and yet happily continued to accept the subscription fees. <laughs> Fake news is not a new invention. Donald Trump did not invent it. It has been around forever, and with every new advance in technology, it takes a giant stride forward. Whether it be the Gutenberg Press, the penny publishers like the New York Sun, or the AI of today, humanity finds itself amidst a torrent of false information posing as if it were real. Now, in all likelihood, someone, if not a few of us in this room, have had well-meaning relatives forward on articles to us from satire sites like the Babylon Bee or the Onion, thinking they were indeed real news. Raise your hand if that's happened to you. Yep, there it is. Now, while we all would like to pridefully say that we, that I, would not fall prey in the same way, we must admit it is often difficult to tell the genuine truth from the counterfeit. In fact, right now, I feel the need to say to a few of you whose mouths are still open, there's not really that life on the moon. You got that that was a joke, right? <laughs> okay? It's that easy for us to fall into it. Now, it becomes even more difficult for us to tell the genuine from the counterfeit when the genuine is surrounded by a vast number more counterfeits, when the balances are tilted and it's outweighed. And our present world is spectacularly adept at promoting counterfeits. Statistics from as recent as five years ago, years ago declared that the largest criminal enterprise is not drug trafficking, it's not human trafficking. The largest criminal enterprise in the world is the trafficking of counterfeit and pirated goods. Did you know that? The world loves counterfeits. These counterfeits sell in the trillions of dollars total a year because the consumer is all too happy with a product close enough to the genuine, but one that requires a whole lot less in terms of cost. And the Dolex on your wrist right now proves it. <laughs> the last two weeks, as we've been walking through the idea of the lordship of Christ in the life of the Christian, we've been pondering the topic of truth. We establish the reality that God is the one who defines objective truth. 
and how easily the enemy encourage us to, encourages us to use our subjective truth to contradict it. In so doing, we participate in the great cosmic rebellion launched by the adversary of God that denied and suppressed the truth that God is ruler, he is Lord. We observed how easily we set aside the truth of God and elevate our own experiences, opinions, and pet causes to take the place of God's truth. The forces that amplify this come from within us and they come from outside of us. And so it becomes imperative for the believer that we must regularly, consistently go back to God's revealed word to reestablish reality and to subdue our hearts under his rule. But followers of Christ, as we will see today, are not immune to this suppression of the truth in favor of the counterfeit. In fact, one might suggest that we are under attack more than those who have already been lulled into a catatonic agreement with the enemy's lies. Our pride and self-righteousness can overcome us faster than our discernment allows us to recognize its error. How often have you and I been absolutely, firmly convinced of something only to have to admit later that we were wrong? All too easily, we then promote a counterfeit command, full well believing that it originates from a divine source when in fact it serves to do nothing but undercut the authority of Christ's word and elevate our own authority. In our text this morning, as the apostle Peter knew that his life was coming to a close, he found himself and the global church which he helped start amidst a sea of scoffers and false teachers, people willing and ready to promote counterfeit truth to the church. And being one who had once denied the truth of Christ himself, Peter understood the necessity of standing firm and not falling to the lie that denies Christ as Lord. He desired that the church might instead regularly remember the truth in which they had been established and that it would serve them in growing sanctification so that they might enter the kingdom of their shared Lord. And yet, Peter knew the reality that there were pitfalls on every side of that road they were all walking. Most pressing at the moment of his writing was the tendency roughly three decades after Christ's ascension for the scoffers and false teachers to deny the promise of Christ's return for his people. So Peter sought in this letter to help the church at large stand firm in the truth and not fall to the counterfeits. And so he declares clearly in the section we'll look at this morning that amidst false teaching, amidst the false teaching that surrounded them, God's word will keep you from deception. Amidst false teaching, God's word will keep you from deception. And it is the only thing, friends. It is of the utmost importance, then, that those who are of Christ regularly progress in the exercise of discerning God's prophetic word. Amidst false teaching, God's word will keep you from deception. If the Lord exercises his lordship in the life of the Christian by the way of his word, then we must sit under the genuine word of God to rightly de declare Christ as Lord. Brothers and sisters, if it was true that Peter's readers needed a reminder of truth 30 years after Christ's ascension, how much more necessary is it for you and me today so that we might not unknowingly suppress the truth of Christ's lordship? Let's listen now to Peter's declaration 
in 2 Peter 1.16 through 2.3. This is God's word. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. This is the word of the Lord. Peter will break up this section, this text, into four subsections. He will declare the genuine truth of the New Testament witness in verses 16 through 18, then the genuine truth of the Old Testament in verses 19 through 21. And then he will mirror this, talking about the counterfeit truth of the Old Testament time period in verse 1 of chapter 2, and then the counterfeit truth of the New Testament time period in verses 1b through 3. Let's turn our eyes to the first section where what we see is the truth of the prophetic word. The truth of the prophetic word. The church had become inundated with the message of those that scoffed at Christ's return. He's not coming back. What are you Christians even doing? Now, Peter spent most of chapter 1 calling upon the church to remember that Christ had promised them that they would enter into his eternal kingdom. They needed to stay firm and fixed in the truth so that when Christ returned or when they died, they would enter into his kingdom. He points them then to the characteristics of disciples that grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ so they might receive the kingdom when he returns. This pursuit, though, is paused a bit in verse 16 as Peter builds a case for why they can be established in this truth of God's word. In other words, simply, why they can trust the core of God's word. Why can they trust it? His proclamation is right here in verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Peter is honing in on the core of all the truth of the Bible, the hinge point of the coming of Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, but overall, his glory. And Peter is giving weight to what had been preached by the apostles because they experienced Jesus. They were preaching his truth. Peter is speaking here of the apostolic witness that makes up the New Testament we hold in our hands. This is the declaration of Jesus as God in the flesh, as Lord. The declaration of his resurrection three days after death. They're witnessing of his life and the power, he says, 
that accompanies all of it as the story is retold in the preaching of the gospel. This is the New Testament witness. Peter then moves to silence the scoffers that were suppressing this truth, those who who insinuated that the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ were all a bit mythical, a bit nonsense. That's what the word here in verse 16 means, myths, that which is nonsense, something that is made up. The apostles did not follow cleverly designed stories that were not reality. And friends, I guarantee you that this is the same world we live in, because there are many in this world that they brush off Christianity as Oh, you innocent, naive people that believe in a bunch of myths. There's the Greek myths, there's the Roman myths, and then there's the Christian myths. It's nonsense, scoffing. This is the same world that we inhabit, and so this speaks to us. But this is not what they did. They did not follow nonsense. They did not make it up. In reality, they were eyewitnesses of his majesty. They had clearly, personally, seen with their two eyes his glory and splendor. Now we might ask, though, how does one see glory and splendor? How do you see something like that? Well, Peter immediately goes to the event we know as the Mount of Transfiguration. And this story can be found in Matthew 17, Mark 9, but also in Luke 9. Would you turn there with me? Luke 9, 26, or 28 through 36. Let's go and read the narrative account of what occurred when they witnessed with their eyes. Luke 9, 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And he was praying, and as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. And his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. Question, were Moses and Elijah just hanging out? No, they were dead. Who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they came fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were... Parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Friends, you have the head prophet. You have the head lawgiver in Moses and Elijah. Good Jews would say, oh man, Jesus, it's so cool that you can hang out with these two. Look at what God has done in elevating you to this place. And yet God stops and says, no, you don't understand. God, who at various times and in various ways in the past has spoken through the prophets, now speaks through his son and his son alone. He is master and Lord. What a powerful picture. On this mountain, Jesus was transformed in a way that showed his glorious place as God's only son. And God proclaimed the truth clearly to leave no confusion. Thus, the word majesty in 2 Peter is attached to royalty and lordship. Go back to 2 Peter with me, would you? 
The voice was born to him by the majestic glory. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The majestic glory, God the Father, here in the English ESV translation, the M and the G are capitalized to speak of God the Father, declared that his authority was now inherited by and passed down to his Son as Lord. The New Testament, then, is not some clever plot by men hoping to be martyred one day for their faith. Why would you ever do that? To play a practical joke on the rest of the world. It makes no sense that they would come up with nonsense. What they did is they saw an actual, genuine, historical event. Multiple. <laughs> Transfiguration, death, resurrection. They saw it. They felt it. They heard it. As eyewitnesses and then declared these accounts to us. The New Testament, made up of this apostolic witness, friends, is trustworthy. It is God's inspired and directed word to his people of what he has done, and not one iota of it is to be removed or discounted. But Peter doesn't just leave it at the eyewitness of the apostles. He goes one step further and declares the implications of what they had witnessed. And the implications that, witness, uh, that that witness has on the Jewish faith in the Old Testament Scripture. Reread with me in 2 Peter 1, verses 19 through 21. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. By the teachings of Christ as their earthly rabbi, the apostles were instructed in the connection to the Old Testament prophecies. Note here that the word prophecy is not one of Pentecostal or charismatic origins. It does not carry those connotations. It's meaning, in this context, words from a divine origin. It's prophetic because it's from God. Words about the coming Messiah that could only have come from God in the Old Testament. The proto-Evangelion of Genesis 3, the first mention of the gospel. The declaration of a prophet to come like Moses in the Torah. The declaration of an enthroned son of man in Daniel 7 that would be enthroned and given a people. The suffering servant of Isaiah 53 and so many others. Peter is declaring that these words of prophetic voice from God that came to the Old Testament messengers were fulfilled in Christ. And what they witnessed confirmed what the Old Testament prophets had been told. Their witness matched up with the prophecies of the Old Testament. God would bring forth a Savior and Redeemer, and he would be enthroned as Lord over a people God the Father was calling to himself. And this was fulfilled in Christ. And so he gives here what seems to be a very light-handed suggestion. The grammar here is not one of command, but one in which he is painting a picture of that which will help the saints to see the truth that they need. He says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. We'll come back to that in a moment. But why can we trust the prophetic witness of the Old Testament as the genuine word of God? Because no divine word, no prophecy of God's word comes from someone's own private, individual interpretation. 
In other words, the people who acted as messengers of the Lord, Old Testament prophets, New Testament witnesses, were not speaking out of their own wisdom or subjective truth or opinions. Friends, this is why in the history of the church, when the church wanted to settle a dispute, what did they do? They gathered the leaders together. No one private interpretation has the monopoly on truth. Peter doubles down on this in verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit of God who is holy. This was not the idea of dictation. God still used the author's human capacities, personalities, experiences, and styles to communicate. He still does as well through individual preachers but they were carried along by God's animating spirit. Friends, do you know what this means? Do you know what this means, that God spoke through men to his church? It means that the creator God of the universe saw fit to condescend to mankind and place in our hands his communication to us. This is God's word to us. We say it all the time in our liturgy, but I want you to pause and ponder what that means. Think about it. Think about if some historical figure to which you've always looked up to somehow wrote a letter that ended up in your mailbox decades or centuries later. How would you treasure it? How important would you think it was? How powerful would it be in setting the course of your life? How valued and loved would you feel? This is the word of the Lord. And because it is God's word, it is truth. For he is the origin of objective truth. To read scripture is to hear from the creator. Should that not drive us into the word with the greatest anticipation and joy? It should, friends. But it's not that straightforward, is it? Peter just said that a moment ago. This world is dark, it blinds us, and it conforms us to itself. And if that weren't enough, we have within us remnants of the darkness, the kingdom of darkness of which we were once a part. And so we need light, as the psalmist said in our first reading, the light to our path that God provides. But the adversary of God is more than happy to help suppress this light. And the fallen state of man is happy to assist. For we love, we love being kings and queens and promoting our rule rather than God's. And so we lift up our own authority in our own lives, in our relationships, which ends up doing nothing more than undercutting the lordship of Christ. So Peter, as a good shepherd does, equips the saints to understand false teaching and where it is coming from. And that is why he is reinforcing in this section that amidst false teaching, God's word will keep you from deception. And so we next see Peter's description of the lie of false teachers. And I want you, as we talk about this, 
to think about exactly what Peter is saying, which is these external beings. But I wonder how often maybe we also need to see the implications that oftentimes that false teacher is our own conscience or lordship. In juxtaposition to his positive statements on the Old Testament prophetic word, he now stays in the Old Testament but switches to point out that even then false prophets also arose among the people in verse 1 of chapter 2. Now, don't equate the weightiness of this statement with the number of words in comparison to the rest of the text. It is very weighty. This is probably the weightiest piece to a certain extent. We do well to pause here and realize what Peter is referring to. And one of the best places to observe what Peter is referencing is in the prophet Jeremiah. Would you turn there with me? Jeremiah 14, first of all. Are you still with me? Yeah. Jeremiah 14. starting in verse 13. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, You shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. And this was a bummer, friends, wasn't it? Because the I there is Jeremiah. And what is Jeremiah proclaiming? Guys, you have to repent or else you're going to go into exile. Everything is going to be destroyed. He could not be saying a more polar opposite message than these other prophets. And he points this out to the Lord. And so the Lord says to him, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, although I did not send them, and who say, sword and famine shall not come upon this land. By sword and famine, these prophets will be consumed. And the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out in the streets of Jerusalem, victims of famine and sword, with none to bury them, them, their wives, their sons, their daughters, for I will pour out their evil upon them. I often ask a similar question to the Lord. I say, Lord, it would be so easy to stand before thousands, hold up my Bible and say, this is God's word, put it down and then tell them how God wants them to fly in first class. It'd be so easy. It'd be so wonderful in a sense. But then I realize what he is saying here is the very judgment of God is for them to listen to it and to stay in that false truth because it will bring ultimate destruction. God judges one by allowing that one to stay in the deceit of their own mind. Go to Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23, starting in verse 25. I have heard what the prophets have said, who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long shall there be lies in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own heart? Do you notice a trend here? And who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams that they tell one another, even as their fathers forgot my name for Baal. Friends, if you know what Baal means, it means the word Lord. In other words, the lies are replacing the truth of who their Lord is. 
Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. What has straw in common with wheat, declares the Lord. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, declares the Lord, who steal my words from one another. Behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who use their tongues and declare, declares the Lord. Behold, I am against those who prophesy lying dreams, declares the Lord, and who tell them and lead my people astray by their lies and their recklessness. When I did not send them or charge them, so they do not profit this people at all, declares the Lord. These prophets are not painted here, notice, as intentional conmen. They were those who most likely firmly believed that they were declaring the word of the Lord, and yet their words did not profit the people at all because they were not words that originated in God. The primary characteristic of what they were prophesying was proclaiming that God was happy with their covenant faithlessness when he was decidedly not. Their proclamation of the supposed word of God did not lead to repentance and honoring God as Lord. Brothers and sisters, simply using the name Jesus or talking about Christianity or saying, I read my Bible and it says, does not mean that one is speaking God's word. And the line past which one moves into heresy is far closer than I think many want to admit in this current day of ecumenical fervor. Peter goes on in his letter to the saints declaring that this is very similar to their contemporary day. He says, back in 2 Peter, would you turn back there with me? He says, just as, notice that, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. Very similar to the Jeremiah language. It ends up undercutting the lordship and authority of Christ, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Peter captures three descriptors of these false teachers and parallels them with three outcomes. And notice, friends, that he went from prophets to teachers very much so. Because in the New Testament, prophets, quote-unquote, are not people who get new revelation from God. They are those that teach the already existing word of God. If you grew up in a Pentecostal background like I did, that is a bit of a shock. That the word of God is the word of God. There is no new revelation. But he uses three descriptors of these three false prophets and parallels them with three outcomes. These individuals first brought in heresies, and the word heresy is nothing more than a division from what historically has been declared by the church, breaking them off from orthodoxy. And these were brought in secretly or subversively because this is what you do with counterfeits. You never see a counterfeiter walk through the airport going, hey, everybody, check out my fake stuff. You do it secretly because otherwise you would be stopped. Secondly, these teachers follow their sensuality. The word ties to thoughts of sexual sin, but it is broader. It includes that, but it is broader to include anything in which moral restraint is cast off. Apparently, during Peter's day, just as with ours, there were those who wanted so badly to do as they pleased that their message morphed into lawlessness. And these teachers, third, were also greedy. Again, the word here is indeed tied to monetary greed, but it is broader in that it is someone who desires to have power and control over others. They preach not to free people to follow the true Lord, but to bind others under their own lordship. 
Interesting, isn't it, that when pastors fall, we've all seen them. None of us are better than them in a sense because we're all sinners. But when we have seen these pastors fall, what is it that they fall to? Sensuality, greed, and power. Still the same. Now, if you look closely at all three, these are all summarized in in the thought that they have decided to be their own Lord and Master, creating their own rule and law, and morphing God's words to fulfill their own majesty. They deny the Lord who bought them. The outcome is then listed in parallel statements. The heresies they bring in are destructive to them and their hearers, first of all. To stand firm in these lies will lead to judgment unto damnation. Why? Because in holding firm to lies, they are denying the master who bought them. And obviously, this word master speaks of the sovereign Lord. They deny the sovereign Lord who bought them with his blood on the cross of Calvary. And so that speaks to the fact that they are not his. When we stand firm in what we believe to be truth that is actually only counterfeit, we are bringing judgment upon ourselves and all who hear. We are the very people discussed in Romans 1 who deny the truth. We undercut his authority and replace it with our own. We run from our gracious master who bought us off the slave block of sin by his own blood, and we run back into the hands of our abusive slave master, which is nothing more than our own rebellious authority. Friends, if you think this is a section that speaks only to preachers, you are mistaken. This speaks to any of us who, by our own hearts, by our own minds, and the deceit that is within them, undercut the teachings and the rule of Jesus our Lord. And people are all too happy to follow when these lies come about because it aligns with our innate desire to be God ourselves, to be Lord over our lives and over others. So many will follow those who stand firm, not on God's prophetic word, but upon their own opinion and worldview. But notice the outcome. The way of truth then is blasphemed. These self-proclaimed Christians and those that follow them in casting off moral restraint, they act in a way that discredits the character of God. To be a Christian is to be one who is actively engaged in the process of reflecting the renewed image of God. And so when we declare that we are Christians and we go out in the world and we do things that are not like Christ, we defame his name and we undercut his authority. And lastly, because the motivation of these false teachers is simply power and control over others, they exploit those around them with false words. Proclaiming to be speakers of truth, they are actually just trying to have others hold them up as the authority, and so those that listen are exploited and made prey. The prophets are prophesying lies, in my name I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. It may seem like those who do such a thing are getting away with it, but Peter assures the saints their condemnation is coming. It will not fail. And just as there were false prophets in the days of the Old Testament, there are false teachers in the days of the New Testament. And so it becomes even more difficult to tell the genuine from the counterfeit how important for them and for us that amidst false teaching, we recognize that God's word is the only thing that will keep us from deception. Amidst false teaching, God's word is what will keep us from deception. Peter's words to us are so clear that our application this morning is then very straightforward. We do well 
to pay attention to God's revealed word. We do well to pay attention to God's revealed word. This teaching series, in addition to the beginning of the women's Bible study and my comments yesterday in the congregational meeting, are all intended to point all of us in the direction of heeding God's word more so than we ever have before. And you might argue with me that we've already been a church that reveres the word of God. And in one sense, friends, that is true. But have you ever noticed when you watch the heretic Joel Osteen, and yes, he is a heretic, never listen to him, he is a lying prophet, that he begins his services by holding up the word of God and getting people to say, this is the word of God, and then he puts it aside and speaks lies? Have you ever noticed that? So we might argue that we've already been a church that reveres the word of God. And in one sense, that is true, but have you ever noticed how easy it is to listen but not understand? Wives, elbow your husbands right now. How easy it is to listen but not understand. You'll get the joke later, don't worry. How do we do this with Scripture? The biggest way is that we remove it from its historical, theological, cultural, and grammatical context and try and wedge it into our context to mean what we in our lordship would like to make it mean. How many of us have heard Paul's use of, I can do all things through him who strengthens me as a motivational quote to win a football game rather than what it actually meant? That in poverty and plenty, Paul could endure hardship because Christ had empowered him in his call to follow him. Friends, when we read Scripture... We have to pause to listen. Very basically, how well does it go for you when you're talking to your good friend, your roommate, your coworker, your spouse, your child, where they haven't even finished speaking, you cut them off and tell them what they mean? Does that ever work well in good communication? Then why do we do it with the word of God? Why do we so quickly impart our wisdom onto the word of God, our understanding onto the word of God rather than pausing and truly understanding and listening? Friends, it's so easy to detach from the context. To do so is to deny our sovereign Lord who intended a meaning when he moved the original author to speak to the original audience. And when we detach it from that, we replace it with our own sovereignty so that we can see it as we please and do with it as we please. And it may be well-meaning, but it is false. And again, it is so easy to do this. I shared with many of you yesterday at the congregational meeting that I was at a workshop this week surrounded by other wonderful, educated, good-hearted pastors, and all of these men, I would say, were probably farther along in the process of preaching than I am. Every one of us had to strive, though, to push past our understanding of God's word to sit in the actual meaning of God's word and to figure out how to apply it to our churches. I can't tell you how many times I thanked God for hearing the phrase, yeah, but what does the Bible say? And all of the men would stop in their pontification, myself included, and we would look and read and say, oh yeah, that's not actually what it's saying. We would stop and we would listen. It's so easy to elevate our own lordship in our interpretations of the word, even if we feel that all of our intentions are good Let me show you what I mean with some of Christ's words in his teaching in Mark 7 that we read as our second reading today. It's the last place I'll turn you. Will you go to Mark 7? Mark 
Let's read it again. Mark 7, verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Jesus is speaking here to the Pharisees, and this group, rightly so, gets a bad rap. But remember for a moment who the Pharisees were. They were the leaders of Israel, tasked with helping God's people adhere more tightly to God's truth. They were the prophets and teachers of the day, so to speak. And their intent was well-meaning. It really was. Jesus even said, hey, if you want to get into heaven on your righteousness, your righteousness has to what? Exceed that of the Pharisees. He's saying they're, they're trying real hard. They were attempting to bring Israel out from under the tyrannical authority of Rome so that Israel could serve Yahweh alone, and they believed that though they were in Israel, the land, God kept them in a form of exile because they were not rightly attending to their covenant faithfulness. And so they are zealously trying to get Israel to follow the law of God, to follow God's word. But are they? Sometimes zeal happens without knowledge. Here, Jesus calls them to account. In studying the Bible, we want to find the line of Scripture. This is a Simeon Trust statement. I didn't make this up. What Scripture means is a line. And we don't want to go above it by saying more than Scripture says, nor do we want to go below it by saying less than it says, because then we undercut its meaning. Look closely and see which of the two Jesus is accusing them of here. In the first seven verses, Jesus is pointing out that they are adding traditions to the law of God in order to maintain their purity. In other words, God did not tell them to do this ceremonial washing. But in order to just be safe, to make sure they don't fall into sin, so that they stay within what God is telling them, they added to the tradition washing of hands. But notice with me, in adding this additional burden to the people, who are they declaring is Lord? Say that again. Who is the authority? Themselves. By trying to hammer home God's truth, they move beyond God's desire and lay a burden on people that was never intended. They went above the line. But then, in verses 9 through 13, Jesus is pointing out that their tradition does the opposite as well. It actually undercuts what Scripture says. Scripture clearly commands that children are to care for and honor their parents in a way that provides for them. But they're trying to be so holy here and so devoted to God that they actually undercut the very commands of God. In the center, it tells the conclusion of the matter. You have the commandments of God, and 
or leave the commandments of God and you hold to the tradition of men. What is the commandment? The tradition of men. Who is it that therefore reigns supreme? The men who put it forward. When we step aside from what Scripture absolutely means, we are making ourselves Lord. And this is the suppression of the truth of God's commands and his role as Lord. If we are not constantly vigilant, we can undercut and suppress God's word in the very moments where we think we are actually acting as his warriors, trying to preach his truth. And friends, I cannot tell you how many times well-meaning people have done that in this church by elevating something that is not scriptural to be scriptural or in zeal undercutting what scripture says. We always have to go back to what does scripture say? These zealous, religious, covenant people of God had standing before them in this story what John the Apostle called God's Word made flesh. They had the perfect messenger of God talking to them. And yet, they told him that he was wrong and they were right. Oh Lord, how many times have I done that? Peter's letter to the church was at a time when the very eyewitnesses of Christ's glory still existed in the church, apostles, and proclaimed the truth to believers. And yet they had scoffers among them, false teachers, who refused to listen to the truth of what the apostles declared because they knew better. Friends, how many times have you sat down with someone to go through the word, and as you're reading it, they say, yeah, but. All these things should shake us to our core. For if the truth was suppressed with the word of God standing before men, in light of so obvious a truth, how much more is it suppressed now? And if they so quickly raise themselves as sovereign Lord over others in God's people, how much more easily is it for us to do this now? Brothers and sisters, unless we are re-speaking God's speech to his people, we are going to act as Lord over others. So how do we stay away from this self-declared lordship? We should be screaming out, how, Lord, help me, I don't want to do this. Well, Peter declares it back in verse 19 of his letter. We will do well to pay attention to God's revealed word. Notice, friends, that he doesn't say, be so scared of saying the wrong thing that you never go near God's word, which is what I think we sometimes interpret from this kind of a sermon. I don't want to make a mistake. I should just probably stay back and let other people do the discipleship. No, what does he say? We will do well to pay attention to God's revealed word. This shouldn't press us away from God's word, but into it. We must be students of the prophetic word of God, not what we think about it, not what we believe it says after a cursory glance, not what we were taught in our second grade Sunday school by a very well-meaning individual. Not what we heard on a recent podcast. Not what we heard from that one preacher who's just always right, because I know that that guy's just always right. But what is the original intent of the original author to the original audience? Stop, pause, and listen to understand. Only then can we see it and apply it through the lens of the cross to our own life. Friend, maybe you're here and you admit to yourself that you do not know where to even begin with God's word and you admit that you do not know truth from error. God bless you for that. I want to encourage you that you are here though because the God of the universe loves you. 
And he wants to speak to you. He's written this word so it gets into your heart. He loves you. He wants to have a conversation with you, not so you can be Lord, but so he can be your Lord. And so I want to encourage you with this, that we as a church invite you to step into this church and take part in the discipleship in which we are all participating, not because we all already know it, but because, boy, we want to know it. Come join us. Come and hear the word of God and study it with the people of the church and be fallible like us, but constantly improving. We desire to walk with you as you come to know your shepherd's voice. And for those of us in this room who maybe sit in these seats every Sunday, we need to admit that we each know what it is to purposefully, passionately dive into God's word. We also know what it is to trick ourselves into believing we are when we're actually not. And isn't it interesting that those times and seasons where we step away from God's word and don't even realize the days that are ticking away where we haven't been in it, those are usually the hardest seasons, oftentimes the seasons where we're engrossed in the most sin. So let's ask God this morning to convict our hearts from this teaching to be in his word. And so let me finish by giving you some practical things to act on so that we're all doing this. And this may seem like the most common sense things, but I feel the need to say them as we finish this morning. Number one, open your Bible. Go ahead, you can write that down if you're taking notes. Open your Bible. Open your physical Bible and read. Why not a phone or a tablet? Because friends, oftentimes we put things on our phone or tablet because that makes it convenient for us so we can glance at it when we're sitting in a doctor's office. Are you sitting and listening quietly, patiently, purposefully? How many of you will be in that same doctor's office, get a phone call that's important and say, oh man, I really need to pay attention. Can I call you back later? What are you saying? When I have time. Five seconds in the word is not checking your box, friends. It's not listening to your Lord. Sit down and open your physical Bible and read. Because the first key to making sure you are listening to God's word is the same as if you were listening to a friend. Don't rush. Slow down and be attentive. Friend, your Lord is speaking daily to you. Are you carving out time to listen and understand? Secondly, read in context. Remember that this was written by an author and received by an audience in an ancient time and a different culture. You're not reading a letter to you. I'm sorry. I hate that phrase, and I've said it before. I've used it, so please forgive me, but this isn't a love letter to you. In a sense, it is, but that's a misunderstanding of this. So read it in context. It's not a letter to you. You are reading a letter to an original audience if you're reading an epistle, for example that God is then supernaturally using to apply to your life. But to hear it correctly, you must hear the author's argument as it was intended by the original author for the original audience. And then, by his Holy Spirit, he will help you apply it to your life as that love letter that shows you his care for you. Open your Bibles. Read in context. Third, read it again. And again, read it out loud, read it silently, 
Listen to it read. Read a different translation. Read it and ask the question, what argument was the original author trying to communicate to his original audience? And refine that argument as you read it. Friends, the goal is never a perfect understanding because that will not happen on this side of eternity. The goal is getting closer and closer all the time to the truth that God is speaking to his people. I love my wife because she hasn't stopped communicating to me over the years. And with every conversation that maybe we've had before, I'm getting a little bit more understanding and a little bit more understanding. And that's what covenant relationship is all about, isn't it? Staying faithful to the covenant so you can hear better over time. The goal is to get closer to God speaking. Fourth, read it with other brothers and sisters. We must grow in this church to the place where it is not a formal church event that causes us to get in the word, but the natural habit of our people to ask what the Lord is teaching through his word. And don't stop. These are good things, but don't stop at a short passing conversation. Find time to open your Bibles together, to press in and sharpen one another in your hearing of the word. If you're able Our Bible studies that we're starting for the women and that will be be coming for the men will be a great place to begin. But sit down and read it. I I would love for people in Salem to walk past two of you sitting at a a table with your Bibles open, discussing the word and go, man, those people must go to Mission Fellowship. Not because of pride, not because, oh, they're the Bible reading church, but because, oh, they're actually doing what the Lord calls them to do. Fifth, read it with humility. Open your Bible, read in context, read it again and again, read it with other brothers and sisters, and read it with humility. Always come to the Word not as an expert who has heard it before, but as an ignorant beggar hungry for truth. Friends, even if you've read Romans 500 times, come to it again as an ignorant beggar hungry for truth, acknowledging from the start, from the moment you begin reading, that you are prone to asserting your own lordship over the Word. And ask God to keep your heart soft. That should be your prayer as you enter the word. The number one thing that regularly reading the word of God should do to us and for us is remind us that there is a Lord, but we are not it. And we need the words of the one who is. Friends, if you're a person who you're reading through right now, I don't know, the begats in your chronological reading plan, and you're literally banging your head on the table going, Lord, why? Here's why. In that moment of faithfully sitting down and reading through the begats, you're saying, you are Lord. I am not. I need your truth. That's it. But that's worth its weight in gold. Because we need that every single day of our lives. And so once you've done these things and you've read God's word, once you understand its clear intent or you're as close as possible to its clear intent, ask how you might apply it. James was clear that we are to be doers of the word and not hearers only. As we read the word, we must again pause and ask, am I listening? Am I hearing? Am I applying what I am receiving? All of this, brothers and sisters, it takes time. There is a reason that you are so generous in part to help pay my salary so I don't have to have another job so that I can devote time to this, hours upon hours. And friends, I realize you have lives and you don't have those same hours, but that does not mean we should hold back from carving out as much as we can to sit under the lordship of Christ. And so many of you might need to begin this morning with the simple question, what do I need to change in my daily routine? What do I need to cut out so that I can slow down 
and truly hear the word of God. We can only say, Mission Fellowship, that we are sitting under the lordship of Christ if we are hearing his truth, his wisdom, and his commands. We are surrounded by the lie of counterfeit truths, even Christian in name, even originating from our own hearts. So we must rightly discern the prophetic word of God. We will do well to pay attention to God's revealed word, but it takes proactivity, it takes effort, it takes time in the truth. None of this gains salvation, but it comes from salvation. Amidst false teaching, God's word will keep us from deception, and it will keep you safe under the lordship of the master who purchased you with his blood at the cross of Calvary. Let's pray. Father God, it is an unimaginable glory and grace that you, the one that created black holes and stars and galaxies, that created the very air that we breathe, the water that we drink, the eyes that we witness your glory with, that you would condescend to speak to us. So we pray that first and foremost this morning, we would hold on to the truth of that fact, the weight of that fact, and the value that it speaks to how much you love your creation, that you intend to have relationship and communication with us. I pray for anyone in here who may not know you, or maybe they think they know you, but this morning they realize they have been imparting their thoughts upon your word, and they have not heard of your word. I pray that you convict their hearts that they would be drawn more and more to your people so that you would walk with them and we would walk with them in knowing you and being drawn to you. We pray for us in this room that may have been Christians for a long time. Help us, Lord, to be humbled this morning. What a good thing that is for our egos to be smashed. And help us, Lord, to be people that approach your word humbly, knowing that it says what you have said, not what we want it to say. And help us all to sit under that lordship. Lord, we know that all of this was so beautifully presented by your death and resurrection and ascension. And so we glory in the fact that you are our Lord. You have ascended to the throne on high. You sit over your people and we are yours. And we declare that you are our Lord and our provider by taking of grape and grain and declaring it through the supper that you have initiated. We do that now in glorification of you and submission to you as Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.